Thank you, please. Marty, Elaine. Um, there are worse things to be compared to than a comet. Although, I'm not an astrophysicist, but my recollection is that comets are made up of hot gases. So, um, and as far as being the founding director of the uh, Hohenstein Center, that's a pure technicality. I'm sort of the William Henry Harrison of the Hohenstein Center. Uh, Gleese is, uh, is a man who's really put it on the map and uh, deserves enormous credit. Um, and of course, Ralph, um, without whom it wouldn't exist and without whom we would not be here today. Um, it is such a pleasure to be here, particularly on, on this day, and, and particularly to see so many old friends beginning with Marty and Sue and, and my colleagues here at the board and, and so many folks throughout Grand Rapids and West Michigan. Uh, it is actually a coincidence, I'd like to take credit, but it's a coincidence that I'm here on the day that, that President Ford reaches that uh, remarkable milestone. What is not a coincidence, though, if you stop and think about maybe some of the unlikely aspects of the Ford legacy. Uh, walking around downtown last night, you know, Sometimes you have to go away from a place for a while to come back and see it with fresh eyes. And you know uh, that downtown uh, Grand Rapids has been transformed and uh, really is a role model for a lot of downtowns all over America. Um, that didn't just happen in the last five years. It started almost 30 years ago when President Ford decided not only that he would put his museum in Grand Rapids, but he would put it downtown, hoping that it would be a catalyst, that it would be a seed that would over time blossom into exactly what has happened. And um, I know there's a whole lot of other folks, most of whom are named Vivando uh, uh, and DeVos, who had something to do with that, and we're grateful to them. But someone had to begin, and I would argue that it began here. Uh, so we've come full circle in some ways, and there are very few things that would give President Ford as much pleasure as the chance to, to see what's happened uh, at the Grand Rapids. Um, it's true, Gleaves asked me, uh, coming in, uh, you know, I get asked, when you've been associated with as many institutions as I have, people ask you all the time, what was your favorite job? I remember last year, before I left Springfield, uh, I was talking about Bob Lowell, he said, well, what next? And I said, well, I don't know, you know, I've been running large and increasingly complex institutions for almost 19 years now. He said, yeah, if you don't stop, you'll wind up in one. <laughs> Gene Kelly used to say that um, he was asked all the time to name his favorite dancing partner. And he says, you know, if, if you're smart, you'll never give him a straight answer. Um, but if all else fails, you can always tell him Fred Astaire. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have no difficulty in, in telling you that uh, the board was and is a place that has a very special spot in my heart, um, certainly because of the relationship that uh, I have with the, with the boards, but with the whole extended board family, and that includes a lot of people in this room as well. Finally, before we get started, uh, it's interesting, I've been teaching, uh, as we've said, first time, um, and uh, enjoying it. Among other things, I've discovered that professors get to ask all the questions without having any uh, concurrent responsibility to provide answers. Uh, and that's kind of nice, uh, and we're gonna do a little bit of that today. Um, the question of before the house is, does character count? More than 30 years have passed since the day in August 1974 when Gerald and Betty Ford realized that their lives were about to be transformed forever. Alerted to the existence of a so-called smoking gun, 
in the White House tape recordings kept by Richard Nixon. Late one night, the then Vice President of the United States did something utterly characteristic. Together with Mrs. Ford, he repeated the words he had learned in a Grand Rapids Sunday school half a century earlier. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart, lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. It wasn't the first time Gerald Ford had found solace in those words. As an adolescent, he quoted them on the day he discovered that his stepfather was not his birth father. He turned to them again after escaping death by inches aboard a World War II aircraft carrier in a storm-tossed Pacific. A different kind of storm engulfed him in the strident summer of 1974, one without precedent in American history. To meet it, the new president had only the 25th Amendment to the Constitution to add to the support of Michigan's 5th Congressional District. As it turned out, this was not all he had. He had the confidence of virtually everyone with whom he had come into contact during a quarter century on Capitol Hill, of Republicans who made him their leader and Democrats who made him their friend. He had the faith and decency instilled in him and his brothers by a remarkable set of parents. Most of all, Gerald Ford had his own integrity, an unshakable optimism, and a governing belief in the inherent goodness of mankind. He had, in short, the mandate of character spelled out nowhere in the Constitution, yet essential to any government built on trust. The men who wrote our national charter fashioned the presidency to fit the contours and character of George Washington, that very human demigod who demonstrated the capacity of men to pursue interests larger than self-interest. In his first inaugural, Washington himself raised the character issue. Quote, there is no truth more thoroughly established, he said, than that there exists an indissoluble union between virtue and happiness, between duty and advantage. The United States, Washington implied, could only flourish as a republic of virtue, her president leading by example, and on occasion using his exalted position to teach, admonish, and publicize. In recent years, there's been a heated debate about presidents, pundits, and ordinary Americans alike. Does character matter? Theodore Roosevelt had a ready answer. In the long run, said T.R., character, quote, is the decisive fact in the life of an individual and of nations alike. But how does one define character? That's a bit like trying to define civilization. Both are abstractions, and yet most of us can recognize either when we see it. I care not what others think of what I do, said T.R., but I care very much what I think of what I do. That is character. The evangelist Dwight Moody said that character is what you are in the dark. Ronald Reagan once observed, you can tell a lot about a fellow's character by his way of eating jelly beans. <laughs> then there was Abraham Lincoln's formulation. Character, said Lincoln, is like a tree, and reputation like its shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. The tree of character is at the center of a debate as old as the Republic. Consider the charges leveled by one Connecticut newspaper at Thomas Jefferson in 1800. Should the then Vice President of the United States defeat incumbent President John Adams, it warned, quote, murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will all be openly taught and practiced. <laughs> the air will be rent with the cries of the distressed, the soil will be soaked with blood, and the nation black with crime. 
invented negative campaign. <laughs> then as now, democracy was an equal opportunity abuser. So Jefferson supporters spread the theory that the story that Adams had married one of his sons to a daughter of King George III, the first step toward reuniting the United States with his mother country. For good measure, they portrayed the squat, charismatically challenged Yankee as a lecherous old man who would dispatch a diplomat to England on a U.S. frigate to procure four mistresses, two for the president and two for himself. <laughs> Interesting, Adams is not known for his sense of humor uh, uh, or a thick skin. Read that story and for once saw the, saw the ludicrous aspect of it. And he said, for the life of me, I feel badly. I, I don't know where my two mistresses are. <laughs> Sex is a perennial in the debate over character, but also, arguably, a poor leading indicator of presidential performance in office, I might add. <laughs> Certainly, present-day politicians have nothing on their 19th century counterparts when it comes to a scandal-mongering press. In 1884, Grover Cleveland, uh, also known as um, Governor Jumbo for his size. He could give, well, I was going to say he could give William Howard Taft a run for his money. I'm not sure either one of them could run for their money. But in any event, Roman was not a terribly charismatic figure. Um, in the course of the campaign, he ran against a man named James G. Blaine, a Republican from Maine who was enormously charismatic, the most beloved figure since Henry Clay, who also didn't get to be president. But in any event, uh, at one point in the campaign, uh, it was revealed that Grover Cleveland almost certainly had fathered as a young man an illegitimate child by a young woman in Buffalo named Maria Halpin. And of course, even then, campaigns went into crisis mode, uh, the equivalent, 19th century equivalent of a war room. And um, Cleveland converted what could have been the end of his career with very simple two-word telegram. Or three words said, tell the truth. And by contrast, James G. Blaine, uh, who had an impeccable private life, was credibly accused of somewhat less than impeccable conduct while in Congress, particularly where the public funds were concerned. The reporters, of course, jumped on the story. They immediately dubbed the, uh, the child in question, Little Tom Tid. Um, there were mass parades in the streets, uh, Republicans saying, Mama, where's my pa? Gone to the White House, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> the Democrats, not to be outdone, uh, marched behind torchlights chanting, James G. Blaine, James G. Blaine, a continental liar from the state of Maine. Uh, you know, they don't make slogans like that. Uh, in the end, however, and I think it says something about the maturity of American electorate, they made a decision that Grover Cleveland who had committed a sin and who had been very upfront about acknowledging it, um, could be trusted with the public uh, good, and that James G. Blaine, who was so impeccable in private life, should be returned to private life, should continue to be impeccable. Um, on the day after the election, the Democrats took to the streets with a new chant, hurrah for Maria, hurrah for the kid, we voted for Grover, and we're damn glad we did. <laughs> in office, I think most historians would say, uh, the voters were vindicated. Cleveland displayed plenty of character, standing fast against pension demands from powerful veterans' lobby. In the years after, World, after the Civil War, a third 
of the federal budget went to those glorious heroes of the Grand Army of the Republic. Uh, Grover Cleveland said, enough. Uh, it didn't win him any friends. In fact, it didn't win him a second term. But it was character. He vetoed so many bills, rather like President Ford, in, a, in an attempt to keep Congress from busting the budget that he became known as President Veto. He was firmly committed to the gold standard. Um, he was willing to split his own party down the middle rather than yield to the free silver nostrums of William Jennings Bryan. No wonder it was said of Cleveland by one admirer, we love him for the enemies he has made. <laughs> and on his deathbed, utterly in character, Cleveland's last words were, I have tried so hard to do right. Character, I hasten to point out the obvious, is not perfection. In fact, I would I do often one side of character is the willingness and an insight to acknowledge one's own perfection, imperfections. And as a result, to be, if anything, more empathetic with other imperfect people. Um, Abraham Lincoln put it best. He said, it's been my experience that people who have no vices generally have very few virtues. <laughs> we all know about FDR and his polio and the popular notion for a very long time. It was, it was among many that, that it, was the, it was that searing ordeal of lying flat on his back for three months trying to wiggle a toe uh, that, that put steel into FDR's character, that the man who ran for president in 1932 was very different from the callow uh, figure of, who ran for vice president in 1920. I will throw a heretical counter-argument. Not either or, but and. Uh, oddly enough, I think it was his affair with Lucy Mercer and the consequences of that affair that humbled Franklin Roosevelt, that knocked the priggishness and the condescension and a lot of the uh, casual superiority out of Franklin Roosevelt. He discovered that he was capable of sin and probably a whole lot of other people just as well-intentioned, just as vulnerable, were also capable of sin. And I think whatever it did, it made him, I won't say it made him a better person, but it certainly made him a person who understood uh, humanity uh, better than uh, before he had uh, displayed his own weakness. Uh, there are lots of virtuous presidents if you take a narrow definition of character, James K. Pope worked harder than anyone. Um, around the clock, um, he was a uh, devout Presbyterian who banned dancing uh, at the White House, um, certainly banned alcoholic consumption at the White House. Sam Houston said the only problem with the Popes was that they drank too much water. <laughs> <laughs> and Pope has been celebrated over the years as the kind of the author of Manifest Destiny, uh, the man who actually added more territory to this country than any other president. Uh, but one way he did it was through something called the Mexican-American War. And then questions arise about his public character. Abraham Lincoln, who was then a young congressman, a obscure congressman from Illinois, introduced what he called the Spot Resolution. And it was very simple. It was to demand the President of the United States identify the spot when Mexican aggression occurred, justifying an American response. Well, it never got out of the House uh, for, for partisan political reasons. Uh, but 160 years later, we're still debating the morality of the Mexican War, which many, certainly Lincoln thought it was a war fought 
for the, for the benefit of slaveholders who wanted to expand the country to the south so there'd be more territory for slavery. Um, John F. Kennedy, uh, there are a lot, certainly a lot of folks without many in this room who, who probably believe that he would fail on most conventional tests of a character. Um, talking up to the biographer, uh, but uh, I look at Kennedy denying the reality of his health was in many ways an extension of how he lived his life. There was a kind of stoicism, even a gallantry, about the way that Kennedy lived with pain virtually every day of his life. And in terms of what impact that may have had on his relations with women, I think you can also look at this as a young man who never believed that he would live to be an old man, and who, for whatever reason, I wanted to pack as much living into the days uh, as possible. Um, in any event, I think he displayed plenty of character during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, for that, if nothing else, um, we should be grateful. If he hadn't, we might not be here today. Character is revealed in times of crisis. As John Adams put it, people and nations are forged in the fires of adversity. Lincoln experienced the death of his mother, his sister, his first sweetheart, and friends. He uh, experienced depression periodically uh, about the causes of which we're still debating. One, one of my favorite uh, recent theories was advanced by Gore Vidal, who believes that it was constipation, chronic constipation, <laughs> for which Lincoln dosed himself liberally with blue mass pills uh, purchased from a Springfield druggist. It's one theory. Um, <laughs> I think genetics might have a little bit more to do with it than that. He also experienced defeat at the polls repeatedly. This was a man who had been fired in the forge of adversity. Teddy Roosevelt, we think of T.R. as an ebullient figure forever charging up San Juan Hill. I saw Arsenic at Old Race the other night. How many, how many have ever seen that wonderful old Frank Capital movie? Um, anyway. Um, but the fact is that on Valentine's Day, 1884, T.R. was summoned home to New York from Albany, where he was a junior member of the New York legislature. And when he got there, he was informed that his wife and mother were both dying uh, in the same house. They, in fact, both died on the same day. And that's when he gave his daughter uh, to his sister, and he left New York, left politics, to go uh, to the isolation of North Dakota Ranch. And even Ronald Reagan, who was the personification of, of a sunny, upbeat temperament, uh, the fact is he was the son of an alcoholic uh, who relied upon Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal for a job. He lived a nomadic existence. If you go over to Dixon, Illinois, you'll see the Reagan Boyhood home. It's a bit of a misnomer. There are actually five homes in the Dixon area in which the, the Reagans lived at one time or another. No crisis poses a greater test of presidential character than war. In some ways, this seems unfair. Shouldn't the leader earn posterity's acclaim for diffusing a crisis before it turns into armed conflict? Consider the aforementioned John Adams, prickly, sometimes paranoid, bereft of small talk, incapable of the white lie or meaningless compliment. Adams is the modern political handler's nightmare. <laughs> I do not say when I was a politician, he explained testily, for that I never was. All his life, Adams thirsted for reputation, 
even while refusing to court the fickle gods of popularity. At the age of 21, this is how he put it, upon common theaters, indeed, the applause of the audience is of more importance to the actor than their own approbation. But upon the stage of life, while conscience claps, let the world hiss. This was no mere pose. Adams put his legal career at risk by defending British redcoats charged with massacring five Bostonians outside the State House in March 1770. He displayed equal bravery in defying British authority and embracing the revolutionary cause. At the same time, his peppery temperament made him a somewhat undiplomatic diplomat. At the end of the war, Jefferson learned of his friend's appointment to the Peace Commission that was to negotiate a formal end to the conflict. He hates Franklin, said Jefferson. He hates Jay. He hates the French. He hates the English. To whom will he adhere? <laughs> the answer, of course, was the United States. The only thing Adams loved as much as his family and his farm. Jefferson did not exaggerate when he said of his Yankee contemporary that he was, quote, as disinterested as the being who made him. That said, he remains easier to admire than like. Being the nation's second president, it appeared, would be almost as thankless as being its first. In some ways, it would be worse, especially if you were John Adams. Totally lacking the charisma, the special, unique bond that existed between George Washington and his fellow Americans. Adams' presidency unfolded in the shadow of French aggression and domestic turmoil arising from the prospect of war with America's one-time ally. Ten weeks into office, he appeared before Congress to waive the olive branch of negotiation, while simultaneously decrying the activities of France's directory in plundering hundreds of American vessels and refusing to even recognize an American minister. Early in 1798, Adams learned that the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, had, through his agents, immortalized in diplomatic code as X, Y, and Z, put a price on peace. The corrupt Talleyrand wanted a $10 million loan from the United States and a personal bribe of $240,000 to line his deep pockets. As war fever swept the nation, Adams was lustily cheered wherever he appeared. A new march, Adams and Liberty, became part of the national soundtrack. The Department of the Navy was established, and an army of 10,000 regulars authorized. Yet Adams, while preparing for war, wished devoutly for peace, even at the price of his own newfound popularity. He had the character to discern and the generosity to distinguish what was in the nation's interest and not to confuse it with his own political advantage. So it was all about him in Philadelphia and in Paris were losing their heads, sometimes quite literally losing their heads. Adams kept his. On February 18, 1799, in a message of just four sentences, he declared himself ready to take chances for peace. This opened a breach in his Federalist Party, one that would never be fully healed. Long afterward, asked to provide a fitting epitaph for his long career of public service, Adams was succinct. Here lies John Adams, he suggested, who took upon himself the responsibility of peace with France in the year 1800. His reward for this achievement was defeat at the polls in 1800. And yet, while politically, John Adams may be said to have failed, in rising above politics, 
He etched his character on the presidency as surely as his words carved into a mantle in the state dining room of the White House today speak to us with an urgency undiminished by the years. I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. It has taken 200 years and 2 million copies of David McCullough's magisterial biography of Americans at last have grown to appreciate their honest and wise, if somewhat prickly, second president, who was principled to a fault. Now, contrast Adams' self-immolation with the political dexterity of William McKinley. In 1898, Cubans, seeking to throw off the yoke of Spanish authority, staged an insurrection. The President of the United States, himself a former staff officer in the Civil War, was sympathetic but cautious. Quote McKinley, I shall never get into a war until I'm sure God and man approve. I have been through one war, I have seen the dead piled up, and I do not want to see another. To his blustery assistant secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, McKinley was entirely too peace-loving. Out of earshot, T.R. muttered that McKinley had no more backbone than a chocolate eclair. <laughs> it would be more accurate to say that the president had a healthy skepticism to go along with these humane instincts. We are routinely told that American presidents are the most powerful men on earth. In fact, they are just as often victims of circumstances beyond their control. In McKinley's case, his genuine desire for peace could not survive the explosion and sinking of the U.S. battleship Maine in Havana Harbor in February 1898. Remember the Maine quickly took its place alongside 5440 of fight, and remember the Alamo in the War Cry Hall of Fame. Amidst the popular uproar, the president could forget about sending out any peace dealers to Spain or anywhere else. According to Speaker of the House Thomas Reed, McKinley might just as well stand out in the middle of a Kansas waste and dissuade a cyclone. In this case, the cyclone was not natural, but man-made. A lethal whirlwind of Spanish pride, congressional belligerence, Wall Street avarice, and oceans of ink spilled by the yellow press of William Randolph Hearst and other press lords who believed that they, and not a mere president, spoke for the American people. The ensuing conflict was short, nearly three months in duration, and appropriately glorious. McKinley showed himself to be a capable strategist operating out of the first White House war room, complete with a switchboard whose 20 telegraph wires gave the president instant access to generals of the field and diplomats around the globe. Yet, the fruits of victory can contain the seeds of later bloodshed. Ejecting Spanish occupiers from Cuba and the Philippines proved easier than defining America's own relationship to these newly liberated domains. Now, Put yourself in William McKinley's high-button shoes on the eve of the 20th century. Having won an unexpected war, you have been handed an unforeseen windfall, and with it the nucleus of American empire. To many of your countrymen, the very notion is repugnant. There was something called the Anti-Imperialist League. Mark Twain, Andrew Carnegie, <coughs> Jane Addams, uh, and many of the nation's uh, literati, um, in some ways foreshadowing a division that we're all familiar with today, were quite outspoken in their opposition to what they regarded as an immoral war. Anguishing over what Court Tate McKinley did not commission a poll, he said a prayer. 
This is how he put it to a visiting delegation of clergymen. The truth is, I didn't want the Philippines, and when they came to us as a gift from the gods, I did not know what to do with them. I sought counsel from all sides, Democrats as well as Republicans, but got little help. I thought first we would take only Manila, then Luzon, then other islands perhaps also. I walked the floor of the White House night after night until midnight, and I'm not ashamed to tell you, gentlemen, I went down on my knees and prayed Almighty God for light and guidance more than one night. And then one night, late, it came to me this way. I don't know how it was, but it came. One, that we could not give them back to Spain. That would be cowardly and dishonorable. Two, that we could not turn them over to France or Germany, our commercial rivals in the Orient. That would be bad business and discreditable. Three, that we could not leave them to themselves. They were unfit for self-government, and they would soon have anarchy and misrule over their worse than Spain's was. And four, that there was nothing left for us to do but to take them all and to educate the Filipinos and uplift and civilize and Christianize them. And by God's grace, do the very best we could by them as our fellow men for whom Christ also died. And then I went to bed and went to sleep and slept soundly. Now, interesting about Christianizing a nation that was already 90% Catholic. But <laughs> <laughs> sleep was soon to be disturbed by a full-scale insurrection in the Philippines, led by guerrilla war warriors from the president's benevolent assimilation proclamation of 1899 was anything but benevolent. What he called benevolent assimilation struck the novelist Henry James as something quite different. As James summed up McKinley's position, quote, we're here for your own good, therefore unconditionally surrender to our tender mercies or we'll blow you into kingdom come. <laughs> <laughs> Having no wish to be assimilated, the insurgents turned their weapons on their erstwhile liberators. The insurrection dragged on for five years, producing an American casualty which was ten times the number killed in the original conflict. Sound familiar? <laughs> How, then, do we assess McKinley's character? As an obviously decent man moved against his own will to undertake a difficult task, or as a weak, if well-meaning, figure swept off his principles by the tide of manufactured opinion. I leave the question to you. That's why they call history I do not end. It goes without saying that we want our presidents to be men of principle. What happens when principles come into conflict with one another? Thomas Jefferson worshipped before the altar of strict constructionism, if no other altar. Yet history reveres him for putting aside his deepest convictions about limited government when Louisiana came on the market. More precisely, Jefferson's constitutional principles took a backseat to his continental vision of the United States. Most people think it's a good thing he did, especially, I assume, the people of Michigan. Richard Nixon was a principled anti-communist until he concluded that it was in the nation's interest, and indeed the interest of global peace, for him to visit communist China. Lyndon Johnson staked his presidency on a war on poverty, a war he believed in passionately, and on a military doctrine in which he may never have fully believed, namely, that the application of sufficient American force could achieve victory in Indochina. George W. Bush achieved a kind of immortality when he said, read my lips. And another kind of immortality, when in 1990, 
uh, he became convinced that he had to break that pledge, that the good of the country required that something be done about a structural budget deficit. Now, how do you define his character? He, he broke a promise. Did he do the right thing in breaking the promise? I leave it to you. Bill Clinton, who again, probably like John Kennedy, might not win a whole lot of character polls, nevertheless displayed plenty of character when he took on forces in his own party to support free trade, and particularly NAFTA. And then, of course, there's the example of Gerald Ford and the Nixon party. I think it's all summed up in one line. The debate was going on around the president about the rightness of this and the timing of this and how to do this and whether to do this. And of course, people kept reminding him of the political cost that he would pay. And this is what Gerald Ford said. I don't need public opinion polls to tell me what is right. That's not a bad epitaph for any public servant. We want our president to be men of ideals. Yet one man's idealist is another man's ideologue. No president was more principled than Herbert Hoover. Before his election in 1928, Hoover's name was synonymous with American generosity. The great humanitarian who fed a billion people in more than 50 countries. Yet as a Depression era president, unable to adapt his Quaker conscience to a different kind of crisis. Hoover came to be seen as the heartless personification of corrupt capitalism. To most Americans, he was a remote, grim-faced man in a blue double-breasted suit. They saw none of his private anguish through 16-hour days, engaged endless conferences with economists, politicians, and bankers. Hoover's hands shook as he went one chair after another. His hair turned white. He lost 25 pounds. Holding office at such a time, he said dejectedly, was akin to being a repairman behind a dike. No sooner is one leak plugged up than it is necessary to dash over and stop another that is broken out. There is no end to it. Through it all, Hoover never lost his faith in the principle of voluntary cooperation over government relief. A voluntary deed, he said, is infinitely more precious to our national ideal and spirit than a thousandfold poured from the treasury. Here was the practical idealism on the generosity of his countrymen that had fed Belgium in World War I. And then the American Food Administration. Hoover comes home at Woodrow Wilson's request, having kept 10 million people from starving to death in Belgium and northern France. And through voluntarism and publicity, gets Americans to observe Wheatless Wednesdays and Meatless Mondays. They discovered the virtues of whale steak. Um, food will win the war. And you know what the administrative overhead was on the American food it was less than one half of one percent. So naturally, Hoover feels vindicated when he says, all you have to do is tell the American people what the problem is. They are the most generous people in the world. They will rise to the challenge. They will, in effect, solve the problem for you. That's the idea that propelled Hoover into the White House in 1929, only to become a ball and chain hobbling him when the voluntary ideal was overwhelmed by 25% unemployment and financial collapse. Neither Hoover nor his principles had changed. That's the problem. What had changed was the environment in which he led and the very definition of leadership. Overnight, the rules and expectations had been transformed. No longer 
was enough for a president to be a skilled administrator, uh, administrator or legislative strategist. In times of distress, he must serve as empathizer in chief. And this was a role for which Hoover, of all men, was temperamentally unsuited. Remember, he was a Quaker and an orphan who once said that he was 10 years old before he realized he could do something for pleasure without offending God. Unable to communicate his deepest feelings or inspire people desperate for inspiration, Hoover's Quaker conscience was muffled by his Quaker reticence. In the end, he raised intransigence to the level of principle. The hero of World War I rode to the final rally of his 1932 campaign through crowds of angry New Yorkers chanting, we want bread. Now, to be sure, a successful president combines principle with pragmatism. Certainly, Harry Truman did not lack for principles, as he showed during the explosive years after World War II, when NATO, the Truman Doctrine, and the Marshall Plan were all improvised with the help of Republicans in Congress, one of them being Gerald R. Ford. In Korea, Truman redefined the meaning of war itself. A generation raised on unconditional surrender found it difficult to accept what Truman called a police action. I think there are real parallels between what Truman was trying to do in Korea and what George W. Bush is trying to do in Iraq. And I'm not forming judgments about um, either. But I think if you stop and think, a whole generation that had just fought World War II and had seen that war end on the battleship Missouri in a formal surrender ceremony is suddenly confronted with this kind of war. It's a collective war because there's the United Nations. It's a limited war because we have atomic bombs. It's not even called a war, it's called a police action. And guess what? What is victory? Victory is anguishing your opponent. Victory is restoring the pre-war boundary. No wonder it was difficult for many Americans to grasp or accept such a radical departure. In firing General Douglas MacArthur, Truman upheld the principle of civilian rule over the military at no small cost to his short-term popularity. The fact is, people are nostalgic about Harry Truman, but his second term was a disaster in terms of, if you look at the polls, after he fired Truman, he had 23% approval rating. He left office with 31% approval rating. That's Nixon at Watergate levels. It's only in retrospect and seen through the, through the prism of his successors that all of a sudden Harry Truman begins to look a lot better than he did to his contemporaries. Harry Truman famously likened the modern presidency to riding a tiger. If he never lost his mount, character had much to do with it. Few presidents have seemed more comfortable in their skin. Three things ruin a man, Truman once observed, power, money, and women. I never wanted power, I never had any money, and the only woman in my life is up at the house now. <laughs> Harry Truman, to use a modern term I suspect he would loathe, was grounded, as was Gerald Ford, as was Calvin Coolidge. Now, it is not easy to stand before a sophisticated audience in 2006 and say nice things about Calvin Coolidge. Um, one feels a bit like the Dixie Jicks performing in front of the BMW. <laughs> Over the years, Coolidge has been stereotyped as Silent Cal and his five years in the White House, a dull interregnum between the heroic progressive era and the electrifying New Deal. 
even among his contemporaries. Many scratched their heads in bewilderment over what H.L. Mencken labeled the greatest man ever to come out of Plymouth Notch, Vermont. <laughs> Cafe society sneered at Coolidge and the culture that produced him. Alice Roosevelt Longworth observed that he looked as if he had been weaned on a pickle. <laughs> when Coolidge opened his mouth, it was claimed, a moth flew out. <laughs> and who can forget Dorothy Parker's immortal wisecrack on being informed of Coolidge's death in 1933? How could they tell? <laughs> if Coolidge seemed enigmatic to his contemporaries, he appears downright prehistoric to those of us accustomed to contemporary political theater with its sound bites, rose garden deals, and cool blue backdrops. In an age when much of our public life is ruled by fakery, when candidates without ideas hire consultants without convictions to stage campaigns without content, Coolidge deserves reappraisal for his authenticity as much as his ideology. To most Americans in the 1920s, he was more than a character, he was a character. Many in public life said Coolidge had been twice spoiled. Quote, they had been spoiled with praise, and they had been spoiled with abuse. With them, nothing is natural, everything is artificial. The president's way of putting down political panhandlers was as distinct as the broad A of his New England speech. When Congresswoman Ruth Hannah McCormick of Illinois laid siege to the White House hoping to secure a federal judgeship, for a prominent Chicagoan of Polish descent, she arranged for a delegation of Polish Americans to lobby the president in person. Ushered into the executive office, the group shuffled its feet uncomfortably as a stony-faced Coolidge stared at the floor. After what seemed like an eternity, the president at last broke his silence. Mighty fine carpet there. <laughs> His visitors, at once relieved and expectant, smilingly nodded in concurrence. New one, said Coolidge. Cost a lot of money. His visitors' smiles widened. She wore out the old one trying to get you a judge. End of interview. <laughs> the lying, the later stereotype of a man who measured life with dollar signs. On the 150th anniversary, of their independence. Gerald Ford was president in the bicentennial year, Calvin Coolidge in the suspicentennial year. Someone asked President Coolidge what he was doing at the Philadelphia Fair. He said, I'm going as an exhibit. <laughs> but once there, he spoke the following words. You wouldn't expect to hear this from the Calvin Coolidge of myth. He told Americans that this was, quote, an age of science and abounding accumulation of material things. These did not create our declaration. Our declaration created them. The things of the spirit come first. Unless we cling to that, all material prosperity, overwhelming though it may appear, will turn to a barren scepter in our grasp. Like Gerald Ford, Coolidge found himself thrust into an office he hadn't sought, an office tarnished by corruption and post-war disillusionment. Acknowledging Warren Harding's good intentions and sometimes corrective diplomacy, there is much to confirm Alice Roosevelt Longworth's biting characterization of our 29th president. Harding was not a bad man, said Princess Alice. He was just a slob. <laughs> Quite apart from the illegal whiskey and endless poker games, the spread eagle oratory, and worse love poems, there was Harding's Ohio gang. <laughs> 
a boozy fraternity of grafters personified by one Jeff Smith, the administration's court jester, who summed up his influence-peddling career in a trademark song. My sister sells snow to the snowbirds. My father makes bootlegger gin. My mother, she takes in washing. My God, how the money rolls in. <laughs> and so it did, until Jess committed suicide under mysterious circumstances that threw no firing light on the dead man's Washington roommate, Attorney General Harry Dougherty. Harding, indulging his own death wish, took off for Alaska and the West Coast in the summer of 1923. But he could not escape the scandals tearing at the vitals of the Veterans Bureau or the much larger peculations that would come to be known as Teapot Dome. Enter Calvin Coolidge, sworn into office by the flickering light of a kerosene lamp in a Vermont farmhouse that itself symbolized the rugged values of rural New England, where democracy and self-reliance were synonymous. Said Coolidge, quote, things are so ordered in the world that those who violate its laws cannot escape the penalty. Nature is inexorable. If men, do, if men do now follow the truth, do not follow the truth, they cannot live. Within months of taking office, Harding oil was washed away by Coolidge kerosene. In the process, Coolidge demonstrated yet another rule of presidential power. Awesome though it may appear on paper, it is purely normative without moral authority. George Washington possessed it as if by divine right. Jefferson earned it through his pen, Jackson with his sword, Lincoln through his mystical theology of union, T.R. because he was born to power to pulpit. Victory at the polls can reinforce it, but it cannot create it. Contrast Coolidge's self-knowledge with the divided soul of Woodrow Wilson. To his personal secretary, Wilson revealed two natures in constant battle for emotional supremacy reflecting the diverging streams represented by his father, Joseph Wilson, and his mother, Jessie Woodrow. He observed, quote, on the one side, there is the Irish in me, quick, generous, impulsive, passionate, anxious always to help and to sympathize with those in distress. And like the Irishman at Donnybrook Fair, always willing to raise me shalema and to hit any hand which stands for an instant. <coughs> then on the other side, continued Wilson, there is the Scotch canny, tenacious, cold, perhaps a little exclusive. I tell you, my dear friend, that when these two fellows get to quarreling among themselves, it's hard to act as umpire between them. On another occasion, he acknowledged dissatisfaction with the life of the scholar. I have a passion for interpreting great ideas to the world, said Wilson. I should be complete if I could inspire a great movement of opinion. I should be complete. Clearly, he relied on his work for a sense of wholeness. Yet even here, he was at a disadvantage. Chronic discontent lashed Wilson to succeed, yet deprived him of the capacity to enjoy success. Each new challenge only reminded him of the pledge he had made as a newly published young author, quote, to linger would be fatal. So he embarked on ever greater crusades to break the power of Princeton's eating clubs, to cleanse New Jersey politics of their taint. Never mind. <clears throat> Some crusades are still going on. To hold, to hold the United States aloof from Europe's bloody embrace, and finally, to win a war for democracy and create a post-war League of Nations 
that would at last obliterate the tensions between Joseph and Jesse, Wilson's and Woodrow's, reason and passion. After April 1917, paradox reigned as the United States was led into battle by a near pacifist who had campaigned on the slogan, he kept us out of war. In Wilson's eyes, not an army alone, but an entire people must be shaped for the coming struggle. And so the champion of self-determination overseas practiced virtual one-man rule at home. The glowing liberal who kept in his pocket a crumpled copy of Rudyard Kipling's If sanctioned attacks on civil liberties unsurpassed by Joe McCarthy 40 years later. I once heard Lady Bird Johnson describe her efforts to get her husband to pose for his official White House portrait before the strain of an unpopular war in Vietnam broke him as an earlier war broke Wilson. Then there was the late Hugh Siding. I forget. Hugh told the story about his first encounter with LBJ, who was then at the height of his powers as the swaggering master of the United States Senate. The towering Texan walked up to Siding, put his face close to that of the journalist, and burped. Every reporter I ever met has a character flaw. What's yours? <laughs> the man who insisted on knowing the journalist's character flaw revealed his own in Vietnam. In August of 1964, the Johnson administration claimed that a North Vietnamese attack on U.S. vessels in the Gulf of Tonkin justified a vastly expanded American role in the deepening conflict. We now know that no such attack occurred. It was the birth of what became notorious as Johnson's credibility gap, and I would argue it's something that is with us today. That has transformed the American presidency and planted the seeds of almost permanent cynicism in the American public. And yet, Lyndon Johnson didn't set out to do that. Lyndon Johnson wanted to do the right thing. In his own words, a president's hardest task is not to do what is right, but to know what is right. We all think we can learn from the past, and we can. The problem is when you become not a student of the past, but a prisoner of the past. Lyndon Johnson and the men around him were prisoners of Munich. They were prisoners of who lost China in the 1950s. That was the history lesson, the narrow history lesson that they learned and that uh, conditioned American foreign policy for a long time to come. As the examples of Wilson and Johnson illustrate, a president who surrenders his credibility jettisons the moral authority without which no leader can hope to ride the tiger for very long, least of all when the going is roughest. Conversely, successful leaders don't simply manage a crisis, they use a crisis to establish credit and credibility to be drawn on in the inevitable periods of testing that follow. It's a terrible thing, Franklin Roosevelt once observed, to look over your shoulder when you are trying to lead and find no one there. <laughs> but think of FDR. Remember in 1932, Walter Whitman famously said that FDR was a very pleasant man who without any particular qualifications for the job would very much like to be president. Those are the words that Whitman lived to eat. Um, but the fact is, people voted against Herbert Hoover in 1932. They didn't vote for Franklin Roosevelt. Um, people's expectations, frankly, were not terribly high. And then, in that one magical moment, it is an extraordinary turning point in American history. On March 4th, 1933, even now, when you look at the old Brady film of that inauguration, you can sense the nation's psychology being transformed from one of hopelessness 
to one of possibility. Um, that's what Franklin Roosevelt did. He established then, in the hundred days that followed, he established a bond, an emotional bond, not a intellectual bond. Remember Justice Holmes' famous remark? Uh, he said he had a second-class intellect and a first-class temperament. Well, lots of successful presidents may have had a second-class intellect, but they've had a first-class temperament and, and the ability to, to connect to people. And FDR bonded in those hundred days and built such a reservoir of goodwill and credit that it served him through all the controversies. And God knows it was a controversial presidency. Those on the right used to sneer at Stalin, Delano Roosevelt. But you know what? Outside of the right, they were never able to convince anywhere near a majority of the American people that this man who had saved democratic capitalism from itself was in fact a communist agent. The same thing with Lincoln, Fort Sumter. It was a difficult, in many ways, unpopular decision. But after a string of failed, indecisive presidents, I mean, after the likes of Pierce and Buchanan, he was someone who had a rod of steel in his character and was willing to make and stick to and articulate terribly difficult decisions. There were people who talked about Lincoln as an incipient tyrant when he suspended the writ of habeas corpus. But you know what? Lincoln had bonded emotionally in a time of great crisis with enough people. So there was never a majority of loyal Americans who believed that this man, whose whole life embodied the democratic notion of unlimited possibilities, no matter how modest one's beginning might be, his whole life embodied that cause. There was never a majority that believed that he would, in fact, be a traitor to, to the democratic vision. If history is any guide, Americans in search of presidential character ought to be looking for a principled pragmatist with a firm grip on the national interest and the confidence that comes from having been tested. He should be able to laugh at himself and at the absurdities and inflated egos of public life. Like Jefferson and Truman, he must be able to adapt to the unforeseen better than Wilson. He should be prepared to observe the law of unintended consequences. If not a visionary, per se, he should have vision. In TR's robust formula, he should keep his feet on the ground and his eyes on the stars. He ought to like and care about his fellow creatures far more than the trappings of office. We can all read these here if a president knows who he is, where he comes from, and most important, to where, inevitably, he will one day return. A president's conscience should be at least as acute as his reading of the polls. Ideally, he will pay attention to history without ever tailoring his actions to the fickle electorate of academics who comprise the ultimate electorate. You only get to vote once. We get to vote over and over again. <laughs> Most of all, this paragon of leadership should be a gifted politician, able to manipulate men and events while disguising his mastery and never surrendering his integrity. I said at the outset that character is something of an abstraction, and yet something I think all of us recognize when we see it. So let me give you a final example, and you be the judge. On June 5, 1944, having made the toughest decision of his life, Dwight Eisenhower killed time watching British Tommies 
boarding waiting ships bound for the Normandy coast. He played checkers with an aide. He cast repeated nervous glances at an overcast sky. And then at one point he withdrew to a nearby tent, and on a portable table, he wrote out the following words. Quote, our landings have failed, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based on the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all the bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. I finished scribbling. He put the note into his wallet and went to dinner. The next morning, his aide discovered him at dawn, sitting up in bed, reading a Western novel. Across the English Channel, the largest amphibious operation in history was putting down its bloody toehold on Hitler's fortress Europe. For the most evil of empires, it was the beginning of the end. So, does character count? You bet it does. Thank you very much. Grover Cleveland was 
in many ways, is regarded as the best president between Lincoln and TR, which is not saying an awful lot. Um, <laughs> but much of his leadership was negative. Robert Lincoln did not like, quote, paternalistic government. His word, not mine. And he used the power of the presidency in an essentially negative way to stand up to special interests and others who would bankrupt the country or, or concentrate power in Washington in ways that he thought would eventually corrupt the individual character. I think that's uh, one thing to keep in mind. Presidents of character worry about the character of the country and the character of individual Americans. Yeah. Who are some of our um, most intelligent presidents? You know, that's an interesting question because there's some very intelligent questions. Uh, very intelligent, that's very, by the way, very intelligent question. But there are some, there are some very intelligent presidents who did some very dumb things. Woodrow Wilson probably had the highest IQ of any American president. Um, but the way he went about the League of Nations uh, is, a, is a textbook case of how not to persuade. John Quincy Adams is a hero of mine. He's from Massachusetts. Um, he went to Harvard when he was 16. Uh, he spoke seven languages. Uh, probably the best read. He used to wake up every morning. He'd read a chapter of the Bible, and then he would he could read he could write Tacitus. He would read Tacitus and Cicero. He could write Latin with one hand and Greek with the other. All of which served him not a whit. <laughs> and he became president. He got up and he gave this wonderful, learned, erudite, visionary speech about the nature of government. And the only flaw was it was 100 years ahead of its time. Um, intelligent, well, obviously Jefferson. Jefferson is a polymath, a brilliant man, and a very elusive one. And you know, we'll go on debating the real Jefferson you know, for as long as people care about democracy and hypocrisy. Um, <laughs> um, lots of TR was certainly. You know, TR read a book. Um, TR read a book a day. Um, and um, and he had, you know, there is, but it's also interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in this field, but people, it's, there's a whole fascinating study about what they call emotional intelligence. And it's not the conventional IQ measurement, but there are people who have, in effect, instinctive um, kind of intelligence that allows them to connect with other people. To, um, to relate to other people. Um, and that is certainly an enormous asset for anyone in a position of leadership, but, but certainly the presidency. Ronald Reagan, I mean, could be argued, had as much emotional intelligence as, a, as anyone I can think of. I think Harry Truman is another. Truman was also a great reader. Truman read voraciously, particularly among history. He was very, very self-conscious about the, his, his defective education. You know, he, didn't, he didn't go to college. He didn't finish college. Yeah? Two questions. How would you rate Lincoln on the uh, intelligence scale? And the second question, are there any presidents in your estimation who have had a serious character deficit? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, 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 we'll limit that to the 19th century. <laughs> That's the coward's way out. That's, that's not great. That's, that's a trouble character, D, that's it. 
Um, Lincoln, of course. Lincoln, Lincoln was brilliant, and Lincoln had, Lincoln had, I, I mean, <laughs> Lincoln's legal training. Lincoln had a very rigorous mind. He was a mathematical mind. Uh, he was a great, great courtroom advocate. He used to say that he didn't learn things quickly, but once he learned them, they were never unlearned. Um, and, uh, and of course, in the college, I mean, this was a man who had a year of formal education and wrote prose that no one has ever come close to equaling. It was always going to be this kind of mysterious what if about Lincoln, but there's no doubt. Lincoln, his political intelligence, his emotional, Lincoln is in a class beyond compare. Yes, Lincoln is everyone else. Um, in terms of weak characters, sure. Here we go, I beat up on Franklin Pierce every chance I get. I mean, this, why should this be any different? Um, the best thing that can be said about Franklin Pierce is that he was a drunk. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is the one excuse he had for uh, how he conducted his presidency. Um, I would think he drove his countrymen to drink. Um, but Franklin Pierce was a man who had the fatal flaw. He wanted to be liked. Warren Harding said, between his election and his inauguration, I may not be the best president in American history, but I hope to be the best loved. Well, you know what? They should have impeached him on the spot. <laughs> Franklin Pierce was amiable, likable, genial, um, weak. Um, and he had this kind of faux integrity, which was really stubbornness. You know, we all know people who are very stubborn, and it, it's, it's not strength. It's stubbornness. They're not, they're not necessarily the same thing. Pierce exploded his party. He eventually blew up the country over Kansas, Nebraska. He misjudged almost every, every decision that came his way. Uh, he misplayed almost every choice. Um, and he still hoped to be renominated. And um, the Democrats uh, didn't give him the opportunity. So he goes home to New England and basically drinks himself to an early death. But first, being Pierce, um, they say, who, who, who should the Democrats nominate for president in 1860? We well, said, well, I have a perfect candidate. Who's that? Jefferson Davis. <laughs> well, Jefferson Davis had other plans. But you know, Jefferson Davis had been a member of the Pierce cabinet. He was the strong man in the Pierce administration. And that's another sign of weakness, is when you have people in positions of leadership who are unduly influenced by strong personalities. One of the great things about Gerald Ford um, is that he was so comfortable in his own skin with who he was, where he was from, what he believed, that he could surround himself with all of these hyperkinetic egos, some of them considerably larger than this room, and, uh, and never feel personally threatened. Um, that's strength of character. You, you want to get the best people you can, and then you want to extract the best that they have within them. And Ronald Reagan used to keep a famous sign on his desk. It said, there's no limit to what a man can achieve if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. That's character. Yeah? 
On Thursday evening's news hour, you mentioned that the big winner in the recent election was Bill Clinton. Historically. Historically. Yes. Is the country ready for another Clinton presidency? Well, that's the deal. I didn't say politically. I mean, I, I actually, I'm sure you, you didn't see it. The, uh, the question, you know, we, were, we were sort of rehashing the election. And I said, I'm trying to remember, you know, we're supposed to wear our historians' hats. We're not pundits. We're not political analysts. And I said, I thought historically, counterintuitive though this might be, the big winner was Bill Clinton. And Jim Lehrer said, Bill Clinton. And I said, well, yes, yeah, not think about it. We always talk on this show about how presidential reputations take years to gel and how they can be uh, reassessed in light of subsequent events. And when Bill Clinton left office, there was a real question as to whether his, quote, transformation of the Democratic Party was in fact a transformation or a purely personal imposition, i.e. a party that could credibly govern from the center. Um, what happened last week, the Democratic majority is comprised of Clinton Democrats, of moderates, and in fact in some cases cultural and financial conservatives, who if they succeed, it seems to me, whether or not Hillary is nominated next time around, uh, will go a long way toward vindicating Clinton's approach to governing. And then Clinton becomes a more historically significant figure because his influence, his impact, reaches long after he left office, much like Ronald Reagan's uh, influence continues in many ways to, to affect uh, the country. In terms of uh, as a country ready for another Clinton, I don't know if Chelsea's interested in running. <laughs> one more. One more, anyone? Okay. Do all presidents have to lie? It seems, in my memory, almost all of them that I could remember lied quite frequently. Well, you know what? It goes with the territory. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not being flippant or cynical. Um, Grover Cleveland, in 1893, at a moment of supreme economic crisis, there was a, a banks were crashing, the nation was on the verge of a, of a real depression, and Cleveland's doctors informed him that he had a cancerous jaw. And believe it or not, you'd never get away with it today. They actually uh, got away with a secret operation that took place on a yacht in the uh, East River and uh, under the guise that Cleveland had gone off on vacation. This was in 1893, and the secret held until 1917, when the, uh, the doctor who performed the operation finally wrote about it for the Saturday Evening Post. Um, now, that, you could argue, was... Uh, he, and he said, we have to keep it a secret because the impact it would have if it got out on these very delicate negotiations that were going on regarding the nation's economy. Uh, Woodrow Wilson suffered a massive stroke in October 1919. By all accounts, his historical reputation would be uh, much stronger if he had resigned then and been a martyr to the cause of the League of Nations. Uh, the White House lied about his condition. But, you, but um, well, you know, that's another kind of lie. Sometimes the job requires the president to obfuscate um, 
When the U-2 was shot down in 1960, Dwight Eisenhower had been asked to be assured, there's no way the Russians could have recovered his plane, let alone a pilot. And Ike, who was a man of sterling character, nevertheless said, denied that, in fact, there was an American plane. Well, guess what? Khrushchev produced the pilot. <laughs> and then everyone was scurrying about it. Then Ike said, Ike's nature came forth. Ike said, oh, I'm the president. I have to take responsibility. And he went out. He basically, you know, he ate crow and said he had, uh, he had misled the American people. Now, he refused to apologize to the Russians. And he said, look, we know that they're doing the very same thing to us that we're doing to them. And as long as I'm president of the United States, we're going to continue doing it because my first obligation is the security of the American people, and that requires surveillance of their nuclear program. I don't think telling a lie in and of itself is, is, is evidence of bad character. It can be forced to... I mean, another kind of lie, I suppose, when Jefferson betrayed his principles, and bought Louisiana. There were strict constructionists who felt lied to and, and sold down the river, the Mississippi in this case. <laughs> but you know what? History hasn't taken that view. So I guess the, I guess the answer is if you know, if you can justify the lie by subsequent events, historians will maybe be more generous than your contemporaries will. Thank you so very much.